thinking when Jake said, Lord Jesus, magnify yourself in our hearts and in our minds. And that just struck a chord with me. Magnify yourself. And I immediately thought of those, you know, on, on all of our cars, we have the side mirrors. And sometimes down at the bottom, it'll say objects are larger than they appear in mirror, you know? Yeah, that's the way it is with Jesus, much larger than he appears in the mirror. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, and he will be magnified at that time. So we're in John chapter 18. I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles, John 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one off of the back. Uh, super important as we go through the word together. And it is, I'm so glad you're here because it is my desire that we all go through verse by verse the entire Bible. Now, some people have asked me, well, then Rick, why do you do it the way you do it? Why do you teach partially on Sunday morning and then you teach more on Wednesday night? You just kind of keep going through the Bible. What if I can't be there Wednesday night? And I'm like, tough. <laughs> people say, are you doing that on purpose just to try and, you know, get a, a, more people showing up on midweek, Wednesday nights? And my answer is yes, <laughs> absolutely. What, we can't give four hours to God on, uh, during the week? How many hours in a week? Anybody know? It doesn't matter. All he's asking is four hours. Let's look at the Bible together. John 18, we pick up right where we left off on Sunday, verse 12. So the Roman cohort, remember that's 600 men, and the commander, who typically that word means a commander of thousands, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him we started in on this on Sunday. I want to bring you back to it. Jesus is bound and yet in control. He's bound, arrested, but he's running the show. He already has been. But the question that I invite you to ponder as we follow Jesus up the hill, like we're just saying, as we follow this painful path tonight, is very simply this. Believer, non-believer, wherever you're at in life, is Jesus bound or is he released in your life? Is he bound or is he released? And that's entirely up to you. Verse 13, after binding him, they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Remember that? Back in John chapter 11, verse 50 says Caiaphas is speaking and he says to the, to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council gathered there, he says, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. An evil statement. But it's not as evil as you might think because immediately John says he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he may also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You could say Caiaphas in the position as high priest, though he rejected Jesus, though he did not believe in Jesus, though he was not privy to the plan of God through Jesus, Caiaphas still prophesied as the high priest. That's just amazing to me. That's inadvertent prophecy. He didn't even know he was doing it. And yet John tells us by the Holy Spirit that that's exactly what he was doing. The man was prophesying, reminds me of Balaam back in Numbers 23 and 24, that skeevy seer who was really in it for his own best interest, trying to get a buck or two that he could out of the situation. 
And yet he had a prophetic gift. He had the ability to see. And God spoke through Balaam, even though Balaam wasn't even on God's side. God would deal with Balaam. His donkey was smarter than he was. But you don't have to be on God's side to speak his word. I know that's an odd statement, but God is the one in control. God is the authority. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That is, no human being came up with these words. No human being initiated prophecy or scriptures we have it in the word of God. Peter says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, even Caiaphas. Caiaphas, who was hostile to Jesus because of a presumed threat to his personal power, but Caiaphas prophesied, was moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So God's gonna get his word across however he needs to, through whomever and and however. And I was thinking about this, that you know nothing reads like the Bible? Nothing reads like the Bible. There are no books on the planet, there are no books initiated by human will that even come close. And I've been thinking about this a lot more even recently. You can look at the ancient texts and I just, I think I told you that I just read through what's called the Didache, or teachings. The Didache, the teachings of the apostles. And they think this was the oral tradition of the apostles teaching Gentiles how to be converted and the process of conversion into faith. And it dates back to like the first century. In fact, some even think the Didache may have been circulated at least orally before the gospels were written in those earliest of years. And so we actually have the Didache written out I have a copy of it that I've, I've read through. It's very short. It takes about 20 minutes to read the whole thing. But what's weird about it, and it was, I told you, considered early on to possibly be a part of the canon of Scripture, but it wasn't, it didn't make it for, for various reasons, and they're all good reasons. There are a lot of good books out there that would not be in the Bible. A lot of good devotional books that y'all have on shelves at home that you wouldn't put in the Bible, but that doesn't mean they're bad. It doesn't mean they're not encouraging or helpful in your Christian walk. And so the DDK, I would put it in that category. But what's interesting is even that book, and I would lump it in with the Apocrypha, with any ancient text, with Mishnah, with the Gemara, with Talmud, with any of the non-biblical Dead Sea Scrolls, and the modern devotional books and commentaries, none of them have the ring of Scripture. They just don't. And the more you study the word of God and the more you're in the Bible, the more when you read other books you go, well, that's nice, but that's not God's word. There is a difference that your spirit man, your spirit woman will connect with words spoke by the Holy Spirit as opposed to words just from the human will. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 tells us, you've heard it, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No other book can do that. Only God's word. And so it's completely unique. And here, even as the high priest Caiaphas, opposed to Jesus, speaks these words, guess what? He's speaking God's word. He spoke the absolute truth of prophecy that it was expedient for one man to die so that the people 
might live. And that one man being Jesus. Now, Jesus was first sent to Annas, who's the father-in-law, John tells us, of Caiaphas. Why did he go to Annas? Because Annas was the previous high priest. And Annas, though he was not currently the literal high priest in the office, he was probably considered the high priest more by the people than Caiaphas was. He's the previous high priest, but he was deposed by uh, Rome itself. Rome came in, they deposed Caiaphas. He was high priest from six to about 15 AD. And then Rome said, yeah, we don't like this guy. We're gonna set someone else up. And they set up Caiaphas. I'm sorry, did I say Caiaphas? Annas was high priest from six to 15 AD. And Rome said, no, we don't want him. And so they set up Caiaphas. Governor Gratus from Rome is the one who, who did that. And then after Governor Gratus, there was a new player who came on the scene and his name you know well, Pontius Pilate. So Pilate comes in there. Annas has been deposed. Caiaphas is now, his son-in-law, is now set up as the high priest. And Pilate doesn't depose him. Why? Because they have shared interest. Because the high priest of the Jews and this governor of Rome, they were on the same page, oddly enough. Pilate came to Judea in AD 26 and found the relationship mutually beneficial. And I got to thinking about that and the fact that religion and politics are very curious bedfellows. You know, they can be absolutely at odds. Separation of church and state, which by the way, I completely believe in. It's been flipped upside down and now the, the state is trying to be over the church, which is exactly what the founding fathers never wanted and promised would never happen. And yet the state is all up in our face. Separation of church and state. So in a situation, in a, in, a, in a time like this, it's very easy for me to say, yeah, separate out religion and politics. They do not belong together. And yet it's amazing how often they partner up. How often the two come together when both are either seeking or trying to maintain power. That's where religion and politics start to mix badly, in a poisonous mix. Let me just remind you, that's not us. That is not us. I'm not saying, and I need to clarify this, I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't have a political view. I'm not saying don't take a stand for what is right and true, biblically and morally, when it comes to politics. But what I'm saying is, politics are not what drives us. Our citizenship in heaven is what leads us forward. As Jesus said, Matthew 6, 13, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. For you and for me, the rule and kingship of Jesus is at issue. That's, that's our, our focus, that's our loyalty, that's our hope. And that is the focus, by the way, of this entire chapter, the next two, John 18 and 19. So Jesus is taken to Annas, and Annas, as I said, still retained great power and, and great respect in Jerusalem and Judea, so they take Jesus there first. And this will begin the first one of six trials. Now, if you're aware of this, just, just hang with me a second. If you're not aware, Jesus went through six trials from being taken, bound from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the cross. He would go through six unlawful, unfair trials through the night. No break, no rest, trial to trial to trial. The first one is in the courtyard of Annas, as we will see tonight. The second one takes place at the house of Caiaphas. John doesn't talk about that one. We get that from the other Gospels. 
The third one takes place in the court of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. The fifth one, wait a minute, fourth one. That was the third one. The fourth one takes place on the pavement, what in Greek is called the lithostratus of Pilate. Well, Pilate doesn't know what to do with him, so he sends him over to the circus of Herod, nutcase, who tries to get what he can out of Jesus. Jesus won't speak a word, gives him nothing. He sends him back to the sixth trial at Pilate's pavement. So six unlawful trials. John only deals with two. So you have to put all four gospels together to see that there were six different trials that took place that night. John just deals with two, and I think there's a reason. Trial number one is we're about to see before Annas, the previous high priest, and the real power behind the high priesthood. And trials number four and six, so actually three, but four and six are both before Pilate. John only deals with the trial before Annas and the two before Pilate. Why? Because Annas and Pilate were the two highest religious and political representatives in Jerusalem at the time. And the Holy Spirit through John is making something very clear. The highest of the governorship and the highest of the high priesthood were not in authority on this night. Jesus was. Jesus had the rule. So the rule and the kingship of Christ is at the forefront of all of these hearings. Keep that in mind. Sunday, we referred to seven points of authority, seven different points of authority across chapters 18 and 19. Beginning in the garden, we talked about this one on Sunday with the commanding authority of Jesus as he even commands the soldiers, and they obey. And if you weren't here, go back and listen to that. The commanding authority of Jesus. Well, now we come to, in verse 12 through 24, the priestly authority. The priestly authority of Jesus. By the way, one more thing. Along the way, we're gonna see the weakness of humanity, big time. Verse 15. So Jesus is taken before Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, Caiaphas who had prophesied, verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus. So was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest, not just known to his family, but known to the high priest himself, known to Annas, and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Early tradition tells us that another disciple was the disciple whom Jesus loved, that the anonymous disciple here actually was John himself, writer of this gospel. We don't know that for sure. We can argue about it. It doesn't really make sense to argue. The point is Peter is now inside the courtyard. And in verse 17, it says, then the slave girl who kept the door, said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Strike one. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. And that is a a kind of a dark statement. See, the officers are there warming themselves around the fire. These are the same officers that were just previously in the garden arresting Jesus. And Peter, who at that time was swinging a sword at them, or at least at the high priest's servant, is now warming his hands with them around this fire. 
What a change a few hours can make. In the upper room, Peter had declared he was ready to die for Jesus. He said in a second instance, I will go with you wherever you go. I want to go where you're going, Lord. In the garden, he's all in for the fight until this bratty slave girl comes up and goes, you're not one of his, are you? Shut up, little girl. Who do you think you are? And it's strike one for Peter. Why? Well, look at where he is. He is warming himself at the enemy's fire. Where do you warm yourself? And where do you go for comfort? When life gets tough, and it does, and it will, when you're hurting, when you're fearful, when you're worried, when you're upset, when you're anxious, where do you go to comfort yourself or to warm yourself in the cold? Psalm 1 verse 1 says, how blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his, in his law he meditates day and night. Peter is now standing in the path of the sinners. He's about to take his seat with the scoffers. He's just two denials away from a deafening rooster crow. In verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered and said to him, I've spoken openly to the world. I was taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. So in verse 19, Annas now questions Jesus about two things in particular, one that he will not answer and the other one that he does. The first thing he questions him about are his disciples. He questions him about his disciples. Name names, I wanna know who's in this with you. And Jesus will not throw anybody under the ox cart. <laughs> Jesus doesn't turn anybody in. He speaks not a single word about his disciples. So the other thing that Annas here is questioning him about is his doctrine. What's your teaching? What's your doctrine? What, what do you say? Jesus covers his disciples with silence, and then he confirms the accessibility of his teaching. My teaching's been out there for three and a half years. You can know exactly what I think, what I would say. I've told y'all before, one reason why, why I will never run for president, and there are many reasons, but one, is there's no way I could. I've got 18 to 19 years of teaching backlog. They'd find something on me like that. Did you hear what he said? Jesus says, my word's out there. You, you could hear my word. In fact, to anyone who has an ear, <laughs> even Malchus, let him hear my word. It's been out there. I've been open. I've been teaching. I haven't hidden anything. And it makes me think that had Annas been at synagogue or in the temple with Jesus, he might have heard this stuff. And there are two possibilities there. Either Annas didn't go to church, in which case he really needed to, or he had been there but had never really heard Jesus. I suspect that Annas had heard the words coming out of Jesus' mouth, that Annas had seen Jesus in the temple courts, had heard him teaching the people. But I don't think Annas ever heard a word that he had to say. And it convicts me because I think about the fact that we can go to church and still not hear Jesus. 
We can go to temple and not hear anything he's saying. Don't go to church and ignore Jesus. Don't go to church for some traditional reason. You go to hear him. You go to see him. You go to know more of him and to draw close to him. Now, the third thing that Jesus does after covering the disciples and confirming the openness, the accessibility of his teaching, he calls for witnesses. He says, I've been teaching openly, but why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Bring in the witnesses. How often does the defendant say that? No, bring on the witnesses, anyone you want. They've all heard me. They can say exactly what I said. Bring them in. Bring the truth to light. And when he says this, we begin to recognize there is a major sham going on in this first of six trials that are all shams, all bogus. First of all, he's warming himself by the fire. Peter is, so we know it's at night. We know it's in the cool of the night. They wouldn't be lighting the fire in the middle of the day. We know that this is Passover season, so it's the springtime, so it's not gonna be icy cold, although our last Israel trip was, but let's set that aside. It's springtime, it's nighttime. They're warming themselves by the fire. Jewish law stated trials must never happen at night. And here we go with trial number one of six, through the dark night. Second thing, Torah law absolutely stated that a minimum of two witnesses must be present, Deuteronomy 17, 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, or in this case, no witnesses. Jesus is just brought before Annas, so he can hear him, and he can put in his word, yeah, I think he's worthy of death. But there's no one as a witness there. This is an inherently illegal proceeding, but it only gets worse. Verse 22, when Jesus said this, that is, why do you question me? Question those who heard me. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? And this is the first physical strike of the night. The first of so many that Isaiah tells us Jesus would be beaten unrecognizable. You wouldn't even be able to tell it was him, his face would be so bruised and so swollen and so beaten. And this is just the first strike. But Jesus, in response to the strike, Jesus who said, when someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn to them the other. With perfect, calm, controlled authority, Jesus answered him and said, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Why? Because Annas must have realized he was in over his head. He didn't know what to do with him. Good thing, I'm deposed. Send him to the other guy. So he sent him on to Caiaphas. The priestly authority of Jesus. He stands before the highest, most recognized and respected high priest of Israel. And Annas didn't know what to do. Jesus had the priestly authority. Hebrews chapter three, verse one, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Keep that thought in mind, our confession. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, 
You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I I am not. Strike two. Strike two. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed, strike three, he's out. And it's just as Jesus said. Luke tells us in that moment, and this this to me is one of the more emotional moments in the whole passion. Luke tells us, chapter 22, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. In that moment, And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. And I've asked you all before, what did Peter see? What did Peter see when Jesus looked at him? What was on his face? What were in the eyes? What was in the eyes of Jesus? Hurt? Peter, how could you? Was it anger? Peter, judgment, condemnation? Well, if you know Jesus, you know it was most likely grace and compassion and love. The way we answer that question, by the way, what did Peter see when Jesus turned and looked at him? And in fact, when you read that in Luke, the Lord turned and looked at Peter the moment he denied him. When you read that, what's your first answer? First thing that comes to mind about how Jesus looked, that will say a lot about where you're at in your relationship with Jesus. Oh, he looked at him with judgment. Well, you're probably feeling judgment. He looked at him with condemnation. Well, you probably think that's the way Jesus sees you. How we view Jesus and how we regard his heart is significant. I believe that this was a look of deepest loving kindness. In fact, I believe unquestionably Jesus was looking at him that this may have been the deepest look of love ever given on the planet. Well, how do we know that? Well, because the rooster crows at dawn. And the Bible tells us, Lamentations 3.22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Paul said in Romans 2, verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It's not judgment. It's not condemnation. It is not guilt that causes a person to fall before the Lord and say, I'm so sorry, would you take me back? It is God's kindness. It's his mercy and grace. It's the fact that we can sit here and even be in a sin situation and feeling guilty and suddenly realize that God is saying, I love you. Don't you understand how much I love you? And it's that love that brings us back. It's that love that turns us around. It's that love that caused Peter to go out and weep in repentance. Yes, Peter was weeping a godly sorrow. See, Paul says that the sorrow of the world just produces death, but the godly sorrow, that produces repentance. Peter would be restored to ministry. Judas would not. Peter had the godly sorrow. Judas had a worldly sorrow. Judas felt bad for himself. Peter was heartbroken for his Lord. 
So I know that Peter went out and wept in repentance because God, listen, God can only restore a repentant heart. This is in, in the list of things, are there things that God can't do? I'll tell you one, God can't restore an unrepentant person. Oh, you're saying God's too weak to do it? I'm saying God won't do it, he loves too much. He will not force it on anyone. He does not force repentance, but he loves us to repentance. It's the Judas heart that refuses restoration. Therefore, God can't restore a Judas because he won't receive it. He will refuse it. But Peter, Peter's weeping bitterly. His heart is broken. He's probably in the greatest grief and mourning of his entire life. But God's loving kindnesses and mercies are new every morning. By the way, how did Peter get up after this? Every morning. He didn't have those alarm clocks like we had like back in the 80s. I hated that. Hated it. It was brutal. Torture. He didn't have the kind of alarm clocks we have like I've got right now on my iPhone where it goes, la, 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 and I kind of go, Snooze. <laughs> How did Peter wake up every morning? The rooster. For the rest of his life, he would hear the rooster crow every day. But I'll tell you what, because God's mercies are new every morning, I think it came, it, it, it moved from being an alarming sound to a reminder of the grace of God. That Peter would hear the rooster crow and go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We need that. We need that daily reminder of a loving kindness that is new every morning and a God who is forever faithful to forgive our sins and restore. Verse 28. Well, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. Okay, so he's now gone from Annas, trial number one, to Caiaphas, trial number two, now to the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. The most likely site in Jerusalem loomed large over the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. It's called the Fortress of Antonia. We visit it every time we go to Israel. By the way, uh, we have flyers, and anyone who's interested in going with us to Israel in May, grab a flyer. It's gonna keep that before you. There's still room. Starting to fill up, but there's still room if you wanna go on that, on that tour. We go to the fortress of Antonia. We go to this very place. We see some things there that are stunning, stunning realities that John describes, and I, I can't tell you about that now. I'll tell you next week. But in the fortress of Antonia, this is where the governor would go. This fortress was built by Herod as a nod to Mark Antony. Fortress of Antonia's fortress, Mark Antony's fortress. Now, side note, they go into the Praetorium, which is the fortress of Antonium, uh, or Antonia, and there's a recent suggestion out there. Maybe you've heard it if you're into this kind of thing. You're, you get all your information from YouTube. Um, a recent suggestion that the Temple Mount today was not the location of the Jewish temple, but it was actually down south in the city of David, the real temple was. And that kind of became a buzz. Actually, four or five years ago, it was like, whoa, hey, maybe we were wrong. Maybe it's not on the Temple Mount. And, and I remember talking to Roni about it and saying, Rick, no, 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 Rick. The evidence is too strong. 
at the Temple Mount, and it truly is. You start to go around it and recognize what's been dug up and what the archeological excavations all the way around the Temple Mount. The temple was there, unquestionably, but one of the things that people brought up is they say the fortress of Antonia would be way too small to house a Roman garrison. Well, let me just explain something. The Bible never says that there was a Roman garrison stationed in the fortress of Antonia. It says there were some barracks there, but not for an entire battalion, not for an entire legion. You, you wouldn't have been able to, you're right, you wouldn't have been able to get a legion. Some say, well, the Temple Mount itself, that 30 or 30 plus acre uh, compound would have been perfect for all the Romans to camp out, you know? But that's not what was there. It wouldn't have been perfect for them to camp out because the temple was there. What about this fortress of Antonia not being big enough? Well, again, the fortress of Antonia, the praetorium, we have it translated praetorium in the Greek, it's praetorion, and it means a general's tent in a Roman encampment. Or in the case of the fortress of Antonia, it's HQ for the governor. It's the governor's residence while in Jerusalem. But guess what? Pilate did not reside in Jerusalem. Pilate liked the seaside. He was a beach guy. And so his residence was in Caesarea Maritima up on the sea. That's where Pilate and most of the Roman leaders stayed when in Judea. The only reason Pilate was in the fortress of Antonia, that was a place where he could go and stay when he was in Jerusalem, and he had to be in Jerusalem on Passover or the Feast of Booths or any of the Jewish feasts. He had to be there. There had to be a strong Roman presence to put down any kind of uprising. So Pilate is staying in the fortress of Antonia. This is his residence, his apartment, if you will, there in Jerusalem for when he had to be there among all those Jews, which he didn't really like to do. But by the way, verse 28 gives us another really stunning case of what some have called Johannine irony, the irony in the Gospel of John. Listen to verse 28 again. They led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves, that's the Jewish leaders, did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. How ironic. Carson writes, the Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid any ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover at the very time they're busy manipulating the Jewish system and their own law to secure the death of him alone who is the true Passover. Absolutely ironic. They will even go so far as to say, Matthew 27, 25, his blood be on us and on our children. Another irony. The only way to be saved is to have his blood on us and our children. I need the blood of Jesus to cleanse me of my sin. But they said, put his blood on us. We'll take the blame right as they're about to go into Passover, something that they did not want to defile themselves for. They wouldn't even go into the fortress. Verse 29, therefore Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not, were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. There's no accusation. They don't even answer the question. Well, because he's a bad guy. What do you mean, what accusation? Obviously, there's one or we wouldn't have brought him. What is it? Speak up. They didn't have anything on Jesus. 
So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. I told you Sunday, Jewish execution was by stoning. But that right of execution, the right of capital punishment, had been taken away from the Jews long about when Jesus was 12. In fact, as the traditional story goes, when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy and in Jerusalem at the time, uh, in the season of Passover, and his parents forgot about him, didn't forget, but figured he was somewhere in the caravan, headed back to Nazareth and realized halfway home Jesus was not with them. They rushed back to Jerusalem to find the boy Jesus, 12 years old, in the temple, completely stunning the teachers and and the chief priests. And it is said on the calendar on that weekend, Rome removed the right of capital punishment from the Jewish people. And there was weeping throughout Jerusalem. Why? Because they believed so firmly in Jacob's old prophecy from Genesis 49 that the scepter, the rule, would not depart from Judah before Shiloh came, before Messiah arrived. And yet suddenly when capital punishment was taken away, it was the final vestige of self-rule that was removed. And it said in the streets of Jerusalem that weekend that, that rabbis and priests were weeping He didn't come. The scepter has been removed, but Messiah's not here. Yeah, he was. He's 12 years old sitting in your temple. It's an amazing story. But that right of execution taken away, had Jesus been executed by Jewish law, he would have been stoned to death, but that is not how he was to die. It had to be by Roman execution, death by crucifixion, which is exactly what Jesus foretold. And this, by the way, is the third, I told you, uh, the prophetic authority of Jesus. The prophetic authority. He had the, the commanding authority back in the garden, the priestly authority before Annas and then Caiaphas. Now we see the prophetic authority of Jesus in that he had to die by his own word. He, there had to be prophetic fulfillment In his death, we see it from the Hebrew scriptures, Psalm 22, 16, dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and feet. And I always like to mention, that was a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Isaiah 53, verse five, he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. He was pierced. Isaiah prophesied 750 years before the crucifixion and several hundred years before Roman, the Romans even developed crucifixion. He would be pierced through, they said. Zechariah 12.10, I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced. All prophetic word. But John says, wait, this was to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke. What was Jesus' prophetic word? Matthew chapter 20, verse 18. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And on the third day, he will be raised up. What's amazing is the apostles heard all the first part, but they missed the part about the third day. It would be Sunday night before they realized, oh yeah, he also prophesied this his resurrection. So the prophets had already said it. You could say 
if the prophets already prophesied crucifixion, then Jesus really didn't prophesy it, right? He's just pretty much quoting them. So how can you really say that the word of Jesus by which he spoke had to be fulfilled? How can you say the prophetic authority belongs to Jesus? It's very simple. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to our salvation, Peter writes, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Every prophetic word about Messiah came from, are you ready for this? Messiah. Jesus spoke to the prophets about his own future crucifixion and resurrection. So the fulfillment of the Hebrew prophecies by Jesus is the fulfillment of the word of prophecy that came from Jesus. Prophetic authority, my friends, the authority of prophecy in the Bible is the authority of Jesus Christ. That's easy to explain because when it's your word, when you're the one, the word who became flesh, Every word you speak is authoritative truth. And so we come to the next authority, number four out of the seven, and I think the last one we'll deal with tonight, the governing authority of Jesus. The governing authority. Look on down now at verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Now Jesus is not being impertinent. Jesus is answering so perfectly. Note that the governing authority of Jesus, suddenly, while Pilate comes in saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus turns it around and now he's questioning Pilate. Now he's the governor. Now he's the one in charge. Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? The Lord is now leading the conversation. He's governing the governor. I love seeing Jesus in control. What he's saying in essence is, Pilate, is this a legal inquiry or do you really wanna know me personally? Listen to him again. Are you saying this on your own initiative? Is this something you wanna know? Do you want to know me as, as king? Or did others tell you about me? Is this your heart or is it hearsay? Jesus turns a judicial proceeding into a one-on-one -on -one gospel tent revival right there in the praetorium with Pilate. And he knew what Pilate's answer was gonna be, but he still gives Pilate the opportunity to check his heart. You know what? Jesus knows what your answer is gonna be to him. When he says, do you want to know me? Do you wanna follow me? He knows what your answer is gonna be. You need to hear your answer. He wants you to know. He gives every one of us, and, and I think multiple times, opportunities to check our hearts before him. But it's a hard heart that responds in verse 35. I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? I can almost hear my dad saying that in the background. What have you done? <laughs> you know what? This is a heart question that we must all answer. 
Is Jesus the king? Is Jesus your king? Or are you just here because others said you should be? Is this on your own initiative or is it coming from someone else? We gotta own this. You've got to own your faith yourself. Don't lean on, don't look to, don't trust in anybody else to be the substance of your faith other than Jesus. You have to own him. You have to choose him. And he's given Pilate that exact opportunity. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. And no one's gonna stand before Jesus and say, well, mama told me that Jesus was Lord. Yeah, but did you receive him? Did you believe him? Is he your Lord and King? Jesus relieves Pilate of all possibility now that he's some kind of political threat or leader of an insurgency. He says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, My kingdom is not of this realm. Jake brought up a great question this afternoon for me. He said, well, wait a minute, though. Peter was fighting. He was fighting there in the garden. Listen again to what Jesus says. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. There would be a battle underway right now. There would have been a bloodbath in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, they would be fighting, so I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Do you know why Peter drew his sword in the garden? because he was still thinking that Jesus' kingdom was of this realm. He didn't realize. The kingdom is not from here. It is not of this realm. Now, Jesus is not denying a future earthly kingdom, as in the prophesied millennial age that is to come, that is clearly laid out in Hebrew prophecy. It is clearly laid out in the New Testament. And read Revelation 20, if you're still not sure of the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth from Jerusalem, the Bible is absolutely clear. But Jesus is saying something bigger than this. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, note this, three quick things. His government is not temporal. Jesus' government is not temporal or, or temporary. Every other nation, empire, kingdom, and realm has and will come and go. Everyone rises up strong, glorious Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, Rome, America. Every nation rises up strong to some point and falls. My kingdom's not temporary. It's not like that. It's not of this realm. Christ's kingdom is eternal, and once firmly established, it will never fail. It can't. It cannot fail. That's part of the reason why other religions and national interests have such a hard time categorizing Christians. They've tried to. They've tried to give us little boxes and and definitions and, and to clarify what it is that we're about. Are you Christians? You're all of this ilk. I've told you before, and it really bugs me, we're not a voting class. You, you vote the word, you know, you vote morality, you vote, vote what you know the, the Lord is telling you, but we're not gonna gather together and go down to the voting booth and all vote the same thing because we're lockstepping because that's our people. It's not who we are. 
We cannot be categorized. I love that because it, it makes us really kind of, oh, the word's not insidious, but it's kind of like that. We slip in and out of every culture. We're all over the world. We got our people among the Iranians. We got our people in North Korea. And we've got our people everywhere. People who follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, love Jesus. And the world does not know what to do with that. All these people who are co-citizens, Christian and Canadian. I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> Daniel said in chapter two, verse 21, he removes kings and establishes kings. But Daniel 2.44, the prophet said, in the days of those kings, that's Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Medes and the Persians and Greece and Rome, in the days of those kings and beyond, God will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So what's different about Jesus' realm, Jesus' kingship authority, is it depends not on the institution or the location, it depends on the king. It depends on him. Presidents in America come and go. They will, every four to eight years. Mark my words on it. It's happened over and over in my lifetime. It's amazing. At least until the Great Reset. <laughs> I'm kidding. I hope. <laughs> Presidents come and go. We have one king. His name is Jesus. He does not come and go. He comes again, and he will remain king forever. This is eternal life, John 17, three, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13, verse eight. So it's not what, but who do we hang our hopes on? It is not a philosophy. It's not an organization. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 1 Peter 2, 6, for this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So Jesus could be saying to Pilate, if you're asking me if I'm a threat to Rome, relax. My kingdom goes far beyond the age of Rome. My kingdom is way bigger than Rome. Objects are larger than they appear in your mirror, Pilate. And Jesus is magnified here. There's something else that many Christians still need to learn. That not only is Jesus' government not temporal or temporary, his government is not political. It's not political. He says, my kingdom is not from here. Uh, that is from this realm, of this realm. What does that mean? Of this realm in the Greek is in, in Euthan in Huthan, and it means my government is not on this side and that side. My government is not literally in this hand or that hand. Or you could say my government is not on one side or the other. That's not my government of this realm. It's not on this side or that side. I think of Revelation 22, verse two, which says on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Figure that one out. The tree of life is on both sides of the river. I don't know, it's not like a canopy approach. It's like a big banyan tree there. Not a steep banyan, but a banyan tree like they have in Hawaii. Is that the deal? I don't know, it's on both sides. It's bigger. Jesus' realm doesn't take sides. Jesus' realm is the side, period. 
This fall, we're gonna watch Joshua learn about that. Let me just give you a, a little peek, sneak peek. Joshua chapter five, verse 13, says it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him, bold guy, and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. (laughs) Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down, note this, he's worshiping here, and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Who's the captain of the host of the Lord? It's none other than Jesus Christ. And Joshua comes face to face, and when he says, whose side are you on, our side or their side? And he says, no. There's only one side with Jesus. The question is never, Lord, on whose side do you stand? The question is, do I stand on his? Am I aligned with Jesus? By the way, his servants don't fight to win temporary turf or fleeting feats of triumph. We fight to save lives. That's our fight. Our fight is to save captives. When we talk about lost people, unbelieving people, nuns, non-believers, and all that, they're not the enemy, they're the captives of the enemy. They are the ones we're fighting for. They're the ones that we are to love and to reach out to and not to isolate ourselves from. And so his government is not temporary. His government is not Political. Jude 22 tells us, have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So yes, we hate sin and immorality and darkness, but we recognize those caught up in it are not the enemy, but are the captives. And we are fighting to save anybody that we can in the name of Jesus. This is a brutal, bloody fight for the salvation of a lost world. And my friends, those are not simply metaphorical words. Have our second suicide this summer. Happened this week. And I am I'm just brought to the reality that this is a very real fight that we are engaged in, that lives are being lost to the deceit and the lies and the wickedness of the devil. And we need to recognize that and fight against that with the love and compassion and grace of Jesus Christ. This is a real war that we're engaged in. First Timothy chapter six, verse 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before, note this, before Pontius Pilate. Hold fast the confession. What confession? The confession of Jesus. The very confession Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. Well, what was that confession? His authority as king. His right to rule. And you know what? 
He even got Pilate to say it first. Look at verse 37. Therefore Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered and said, you said it. Now I know your Bible says you say correctly that I am a king. But literally the, the Greek phrase there is silagase. So you are a king, silagase, is what Jesus said, which is to say you said it. As you say. Yes, as you just said. This, by the way, this phrase, you said it, silagase, is confirmed in Matthew 27, verse 11, Mark 15, verse two, Luke 23, verse three. In all four cases in the Gospels, Pilate says, so you're a king? And Jesus says, right on. Silagase, you said it. The first coming presence of Jesus on earth testified, confessed, if you will, his divine authority. It all culminates to this point. Yes, he is the king. It, it established his right to return and rule. And for us, it is all about coming under his commanding, priestly, prophetic, governing authority, Jesus Christ, the one who's born to be king. I love this verse. You may be familiar with it. Isaiah 9, verse six, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, counselor, mighty, God, eternal, father, prince of peace. And, and I say each one of those words individually because as Isaiah prophesied, each one is a, na a noun. There are seven nouns there describing the character, the nature, the wonder of Jesus. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So when Jesus makes this statement, when he says, for this reason I have been born, verse 37, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Man, that gives me such peace because I realize that not only is his government uh, not temporary and, and that his government is not political, it's also not relative. The government of Jesus is not relative. That is, it is absolute, unquestionably absolute. If you desire truth, guess what? In Jesus, you'll get it. If you really wanna know truth, if you're one who is of the truth, you're gonna hear his voice. Blessed are those, Matthew 5, 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And just remember this, truth is not a construct, a thought, or a hypothesis. Truth is not how you see it or what I make of it. In fact, truth is not an it at all. Truth is Jesus. Are you listening to his voice? Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Are you listening to his voice? It's a lot of political noise. There's a lot of religious unrest in Jerusalem. And for all the professional self-interest in Pilate, in all that clamor, Pilate couldn't hear the truth. He just couldn't even hear it. It's very sad to me, Pilate's state. He couldn't hear or see the truth, though the truth was right in front of him, Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
What a devastating statement. What is truth? Pilate's the ancient governor with the postmodern progressive mentality. What is truth? There's your truth, my truth. What, what really is truth anyway? And so he walks out on the truth. Like so many people after him who will stand right face to face with Jesus or perhaps with you declaring Jesus, sharing who Jesus is, and they'll go, what is truth? That's your truth. I've got my truth. Jesus' government is not relative. It is absolute. Wow. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. I mean, it goes on. He, he said this, and he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. He knows Jesus is innocent, but he can't see the truth. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? And so they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Okay, one more thing tonight. You've got to hear this. First of all, robber probably doesn't do it justice. I always think of my brother. I think I've told this story before. Ron, maybe you all have heard this. He went into elementary school, and, and one weekend, I think we were at home on a weekend, he saw in a movie someone used the phrase, that's murder, that's murder. And Ron thought, that is so cool. He's in elementary school, understand, fourth, fifth grade, and he's like, I'm gonna go use that at school on Monday. And I heard him in the house, I remember this, practicing, that's murder. You know, I'd take, I'd take the cereal box and he'd go, that's murder. And so he's practicing, getting ready for school, goes to school, Monday morning, comes into the classroom, someone does something and Ron cries out, that's robbery. <laughs> and he hung his head like so many times before. Poor bro. Barabbas was a lestes in the Greek, a lestes, which means a terrorist. He had been involved in an insurrection that resulted in murder. That's why he was on death row. He wasn't just a robber, he wasn't just stealing off the streets. He was an insurrectionist. He was a fighter. He was, the word can also be used of a guerrilla fighter, which is interesting because people say, you know, depending on what side you're signed, you're on, you're, the person's either a guerrilla fighter or a terrorist. A terrorist is someone who unfairly and unwisely takes life, you know. A terrorist is someone who straps a bomb belt around their waist and blows themselves up to take out as many people as possible. That's not a freedom fighter or a guerrilla, by the way. That's a terrorist. Barabbas was a terrorist. Barabbas' name is Hebrew. Bar-Abba. Bar-Abba. Bar meaning son of, Abba, father. Barabbas means son of the father. Son of the father. Origen, who was a brilliant thinker in the 200s or the third century AD, he's been deemed by some a heretic, I think his thinking got out ahead of him, but he was an, an early witness, an early Christian. He declared some things that I would disagree with, but he stated very clearly, and, and early Christian tradition tells us the first name of Barabbas, the first name of son of the father was, brace yourselves, Yeshua. Shall I release to you Yeshua, son of the father, or Yeshua, son of the Father. <laughs> Who 
do you want? Matthew's description of this moment is even sharper in contrast. As Pilate says, Matthew 27, 17, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus who is called Christ? Which one do you want to have released? Murderer or Messiah? Robber or redeemer? Insurgent or savior? They chose Barabbas. All four gospels name him, which is interesting. All four call him out. Some have actually suggested maybe it's like Malchus, maybe, and we don't know for sure about Malchus either, but maybe both Malchus and Barabbas are named in the gospels because both Malchus and Barabbas eventually came to repentance and bowed to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So they were known in the early church, so perhaps, maybe. But the point of naming Barabbas in all four gospels is not what happened to Barabbas. It's to focus on a choice. That the people then, as people now, have a choice. We will knowingly choose either Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, as our Lord and Savior, our King, our authority, the ruler over us, or we will choose the murderer. In fact, Jesus said in John 5, 43, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And he was prophesying about Antichrist. We're looking to a time not far from now when the world will fall head over heels for Antichrist, choosing him, a murderer, an insurrectionist, an evil dude, Satan-possessed, over Jesus, the true son of the Father. So I leave you with the question we started with tonight. Who do you choose to be released into your life? If your words say, I choose Jesus Christ, then what do your actions say? Are they lined up? Is there integrity between what you speak and what you do? I choose Jesus, the Christ. And with that, do you release Jesus in your life every day to be about his business. Father, as we pause here, even midway in this deeply passionate story, in this very painful and personal story of our beloved groom of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, I ask you to make it real for us that while we look at an historical event, this is so deeply personal because you died for every single one of us in the room tonight. You died across history for everyone who simply would choose you. And Lord Jesus, I pray that your power, your love, your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness, and your righteousness would be released in us. Released in us tonight. Released, Lord Jesus, in our fellowship to serve you. Released to finally reach that last person who is captive of the enemy in the world today released to the freedom and the liberty that is in your spirit. Oh, I pray, Jesus, release us by being released in us. In Jesus' name, amen.